and welcome to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. My name is Sally Nilsson and I'm a psychotherapist, published author, public speaker and mum. I discovered my autism and ADHD aged 56 in March 2021 and having rewritten my life story, I'm on a quest to advocate for neurodivergent community. I hope you enjoy listening to my incredible guests sharing their experiences of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, Tourette's and OCD. We talk about growing up, education, work and personal stories and how mental health has played its part in shaping lives. Our conversations cover spectrums, traits, challenges, acceptance and successes. So sit back, relax and find out what it means to feel, think and be different in a neurotypical world. Hi Sarah and thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. It's really good to meet you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Excellent. And uh, the way I, I like to do the podcast, if it's okay, it's just a chat, you know, I'm really interested um, to hear to hear about you. So um, I've just got a few questions here and I hope you're okay to answer them. And really, you know, just to kick off, um, I'd like to just uh, do a little bit of an introduction, if that's okay. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Sarah, I'm 26 years old. Um, I'm autistic, an ADHD and dyslexic. So I'm definitely anything but neurotypical. (laughs) Um, Again, I've always kind of, most of my life I've known about being dyslexic. So I think I'm probably about eight, nine, I think when I found out. And then again, the ADHD and autism didn't come until kind of more recently. So I was 23 when I realised I was autistic. Got diagnosed at 23. Yeah, I was 24 when I found out. And then 25 when I got my ADHD confirmed. So... Yeah, it's definitely been a bit of a journey to get to this point. It has. But. And um, and um, I did a talk recently and we were talking about dyslexia. And, you know, we're, I think we really are in a sea change in society of how we look at all the neurodivergences. And um, I certainly see quite a lot of clients with um, dyslexia. And uh, dyslexia in itself, it's such a dif- difficult one for mental health. You know, you're saying sort of eight or nine. And, um, you know, the people, you know, my clients are sort of saying to me, um, I had low self-worth, you know, I was always behind and it affected so much. And everyone was looking at the deficits of dyslexia just in itself without looking at the, the really good stuff about it. You know, some of the things like being able to see the bigger picture, you know, spotting anomalies, you know, being a, like a detective, you know, apparently dyslexics make really good spies, but Nobody would ever look at that, would they? So how did dyslexia just in itself affect you when you were at school? Um, I think when I was in school, I think you kind of picked up on the main thing there. Although it's primarily to do with reading and writing, the long-term impact is huge on mental health as kind of all the professionals around you and everyone's kind of focusing what's wrong with you. And there's all these interventions and, you know, extra tuition or whatever focused on kind of I guess trying to fix a problem or that's how much I think I internalized at the time and again these people primarily had good intentions because 
again, they think, oh, she's got problems with reading. Let's put all this focus on reading, reading, reading. But when you put so much emphasis, I think, on a, that deficit, especially as it's kind of related to a neurodivergence, it really does have a knock-on effect. And again, it's like, oh, so these people only see me as kind of not good enough. And those are questions you start to ask yourself at, at quite a young age. Um, as I know so many kind of people think, right, let's do as much as we can to try, I guess, fix this problem. But I'm not sure that's the best way to look at it personally. No, it isn't. And, and uh, you know, just you saying that fix this problem, it, it, it keeps coming back to the pathologizing of it. And, and I don't mean to, but it, it will change. I'm, I'm absolutely confident that it will change. But it is that fix it, it's broken. So we need to find a cure. We need to treat mm -hmm. because you're suffering and you need our help. Instead of realizing that you're a whole human being, it's, it's part of who you are and how, you know, I mean, I like to use the word challenge. You know, I like the word challenge because challenge can be a positive thing as well as a negative thing. So, so that already was difficult. And then you went all the way till 23 before you, you know, you were diagnosed with um, ADHD and autism. Um, I'm going to come back to that, actually. But before I come back to that, just um, generally about school, you know, I don't know if this is relevant for you, but, but um, I'm, I'm just going to ask you the question. How was it like with your teachers um, and the other, you know, kids in school and really sort of in relation to any sort of bullying or, or difficulties like that? Mm -hmm. Okay, so bullying was, to put it bluntly, absolutely horrific. Um, again, I think I was becoming aware that I was being bullied and singled out by my peers around, I'm going to say about seven to eight and then that continued right the way through till 16 before I went to sixth form. So that was a solid nine years. I was being bullied almost every single day at school. And it's just horrific. It, it is just absolutely kind of soul destroying. And again, sometimes it would be like big things, sometimes not so big. But it almost meant as soon as I entered the school, my flight and flight would be instantly on and it would be throughout the whole day. And again, like, it was almost like I couldn't even learn because I was too busy focusing on, well, I can't be in this part of school this time of day because that person who bullies me has got a lesson there. And I know that it's like I'd almost memorise other people's timetables and like plan my way around the school to kind of avoid. And again, that's what my focus is on rather than, you know, my friendships and actually <laughs> the learning, which is kind of the point of school. So school was definitely incredibly challenging. It was, it was just about surviving it more than That's anything. It's that so interesting that you're saying that because um, I, I'm really interested in polyvagal theory and about, mm -hmm. um, you know, fight and flight and, and, and how it affects, you know, so many parts of our mind and body. And one of the things is about like just facial expressions and body language. And, um, and I know that this would happen to me as well because I was bullied really badly as well. And um, it's that thing about other students 
they can spot it on you. If, you're, if you've got fight and flight going on, your head might be bowed, you might be fidgeting, you might be moving in a different way, you're, you're, you might be scrunched over and looking stressed. And it's like a dog if it's nervous and it sees you're nervous, it'll come and bite you. And I think that's exactly the same with humans. So I can totally understand what it must have been like in school for you, you know, and, and to the point where you have to completely plan your day. And it's such a shame because, you know, <clears throat> platitudes and all the rest of it, people say, oh, your school life is the best years of, of your life. No. <laughs> no. I don't remember any of it. And it's because I've just shoved it in all these filing cabinets, which doesn't bode well when I'm writing my autobiography, by the way. Never mind. Um, but it's that, it, it is that difficulty that we have. And how did it change for you when you went to college? I think, I think with college it almost kind of felt like a bit like a fresh start and again I just felt the attitudes of people were quite different I don't know if it's because perhaps it was kind of because it was age 16 to 18 people were just a bit more mature um but again kind of I didn't have that flight flight response you know again I could kind of focus on the, the important things and the things I enjoyed more in that environment um but yeah, I just found, again, I think as well, I really didn't like also about school was how kind of, how little control you have of your life. Again, school kind of very uh, strictly dictates that for you. Like you're, you're in this room doing this lesson for an hour and you're again, and you'll have to sit this place in the classroom. You really have no choice. <laughs> And that's funny you say that though isn't it because um the thing about uh our neurodivergent um community and our lives personally speaking as well is that it's all a dichotomy it's all it's all anomalies and paradox and and and, and you know things that we hate about other people we're doing for ourselves so very often we we do need um, a bit of a rigidity and we need repetitive and we need structure and routine and everything else when we're in control of it yeah uh, the whole of the education system um, is not set up for people who are wired differently um, and I think we've got quite a long way to go before it is you know because many of us don't we we have different time um, schedules um, you know there's all those sensory issues and things like that going on and it is hard. So, so you know, I, I appreciate that. And um, so you managed to go through college and, uh, and then you went on to university. So what did you study at university and how did you find university? Yeah, so again, actually, so my first degree is in tourism management. So completely... In what, sorry? Tourism management. Oh, right, yeah. So very different to what I'm doing now with my life. But um, I think is I think I've always loved like travel and geography. That's always been one of my interests. So I think that's kind of what led me down that road at that time. And I think it was almost like it's weird because looking back now, I'm not sure I would have gone to university at that point in my life. I think only because it felt like a very conveyor belt. Like all, almost everyone's going to me, and that's just what everyone does. And I know um, at sixth form they pushed it a lot. Um, so I went and it looked back, it was actually quite interesting because in some ways it was, I had a really good time, but there were certainly other things that could have been better. And it's like, even from very early on, I think people were certainly noticing my neurodivergence. Um, and sometimes, again, I did felt 
like I was almost being left out and it's only looking back now it's like oh that makes sense um not always so and it's weird because like as well because not everyone I knew at uni kind of knows any neurodivergent but kind of the, the friendships that have last I would say very few of them are neurotypical um so yeah I, it's it's kind of interesting how that works out um it is and um I mean now now that I've been diagnosed and it was it was only a little while ago um mm-hmm. I'm spotting people um by that you've got to be so careful with that especially around your mm-hmm. friendship groups you know you can't sort oh hi love um <laughs> let's have a conversation yeah. you know you, you you just can't do that but um for you at university did you have any other friends that you that were neurodivergent because it's supposed to be one in five you know like certainly in the United States there's research coming out that 20% of the population because loads of people aren't diagnosed aren't they so 20% of the population have got you know and the fact that if any of us have got any neurodivergency we kind of get each other did you have any Mm -hmm. friends that were neurodivergent and was that you know and if so was that a good thing you know yeah I think to be honest I think most of my friends are neurodivergent in one way or another some knew about it some still don't uh, some have realised since it's kind of very um, mixed bag but I do feel like we kind of some way find each other without even knowing I don't know if you've ever experienced that I love it <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, it's amazing I really love it you know and I because I don't I mean I drive my family absolutely bonkers because um, I think you know I just drive them mad but I, I've calmed down a little bit now that I've finished the, um, or, you know most of the research part of it and I just get on with it but do you find mm-hmm. because really at your age you are what you would be considered late diagnosed mm-hmm. um, and and so because of that you know some of your friends that, that you're, you've always known they don't well, certainly in my case as well, they don't really want to know about it because they already know you. You're, you're already cast. Your model is cast. You are who you are. They like you because you're quirky and a bit mad and a bit silly. Silly Sally, mad Sally, all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. So, you know, can you talk to other friends about it, especially neurotypical ones? Yeah. So, again, I've noticed some people, it's really mixed. Some people are happy to talk about it. Others not so much um and it kind of it does vary i find from friend to friend there's no like set thing but i do remember being incredibly nervous to tell the people closest to me about it more than anything because i'm like because i guess you're worried how much is this going to change your opinion to me is this going to be positive negative you never really know until you kind of take that step and then you can't take it back but i think one of the most interesting responses i actually had was from a primary school friend He's just said, when I kind of told them, look, I've just discovered I'm autistic, they were like, yeah, I'm not surprised. And I was like, what? (laughs) And she'd known me since primary school. And to be fair, she's got autistic family members as well. So, and then she just listed all these things. She's like, yeah, I've noticed this, that. And then the other thing about you, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. And then there was another one of my primary school friends with us. And then she said, oh does that explain why you did this in school and why you did that in school and I'm like yes it <laughs> yes. does <laughs> that was really fun. that was actually quite funny I wasn't expecting that conversations to go like that but it did I know so. that, that that is very funny I haven't, I haven't really had that but I, what I have had and I, I keep seeing this on um because I'm predominant ADHD and I 
like I'm on TikTok all the time because it's such a fantastic platform. For oh me. gosh, I like that with TikTok as well. Oh my like, god, it's so brilliant. I've got a channel as well because I just love, you know, because yeah. we, we we love sharing, don't we, and being super super honest. But in in the outside world, in the outside community. The thing that can be quite frustrating, and this is part of our rejection sensitivity dysphoria, which many of us suffer, whether it's just suffer, well, get on with, not suffer, but it can be quite challenging, is things like, um, oh, don't be ridiculous. We all do that. You don't oh. look autistic. Are you oh, sure? You know, who diagnosed you? All that kind of stuff. Do you ever get that sort of um, non-validation and that, that judgmental questioning? Yeah, no, definitely, because, again, there is such a narrow view of what autism can look like. And, again, I don't look like the stereotypical version of autism. To be honest, most autistic people I've come to know actually don't, um, thinking about it. But, yeah, I think people just see it as, like, this white five-year-old little boy playing with his train set, and they kind of can't, don't see autism beyond that. And I was like, and it's just, and I think this is the thing, like, in terms of people the late diagnosis is that autism is there's so much more variety and it's so much more broad than a lot of people realize and and this this is it is going to change because you're an advocate i'm an advocate i you know and Mm -hmm. people like us and hopefully more and more will want to do this via platforms like um uh, tiktok and instagram you know and we're pushing this and so as young as younger people are coming up and getting diagnosed and and assessed it'll be really good so um as far as um you know (laughs) please you don't have to answer this if it's a bit personal um but um do you know if any of your other family members um might be neurodivergent definitely i mean i meet Actually, no, I, I know there's at least one other person in my family who has a dyslexia diagnosis. Um, but beyond that, I don't think any of my relatives have been diagnosed with anything. But I think a fair amount, few of them are neurodivergent. They probably just haven't got diagnosed or they haven't realised yet. Um, and that's, <laughs> uh, you know, but you know, 80% of the time they say it is genetic. But mm-hmm. certainly, if it, you know, because I'm a neurodivergent um, psychotherapist as well, I am absolutely saying, you know, it doesn't matter if you're self-diagnosed because if you think that you might be neurodivergent and uh, you would have done an awful lot of research and gone on YouTube and done all these different things and you're not really going to walk around society with a flag saying I'm autistic if you're not, um, I can't really see the benefit of that. Um, But, you know, there's many of us and, you know, and I look beyond my close family and see, you know, Oh, Uncle Piers and Granddad, he was eccentric, and it's quite funny, isn't it? So, um, you know, throughout your life, um, how do you think your uh, mental health has been affected with your um, autism, ADHD and dyslexia? Yeah, so I think a lot of it is kind of how the world around me has kind of viewed my differences, and again because you're kind of always told or it's implied that you're wrong or you're overreacting or again I guess your experience of the world isn't valid just because it's not the same as other people's and again because I had nothing to counteract that and that's a message I was getting from a very young age I think I very much internalized that and just thought oh I'm being silly I'm being I'm overreacting you just need to get over this, Sarah. And then I think it was that constant thinking that led to 
a massive burnout I had at 23 and then that's kind of eventually that led to me discovering I was autistic um but at the same time it shouldn't have had to get to that point to realize that and no, it I shouldn't think and uh, and and when when you find out that you've had an autistic burnout and I had one when my mum was in hospital and I was going towards assessment and diagnosis and I had a burnout and I was kind of sat on the sofa for 10 days really and uh, mm -hmm. I, and it is hard I mean there's two sides of it aren't there because there's there's living um, inside your own body and your mind as a neurodivergent person and so you know we can't take it for granted all the challenges there are because of masking so how mm -hmm. much do you think especially as a, as a woman how much do you think masking um uh is affected with your mental health because as you say and you said a couple of times which is uh you internalize things all the time instead of just getting rid of the mask and living your true self yeah i think the mask is i know somebody i can't remember who initially said this but i think it's brilliant masking is a trauma response and i think that's a very interesting way of looking at it because in some ways it's masking gives you safety in social situations so again yes you're pretending that something's not affecting you when it is or you're pretending that this small talk conversation is great when really you're thinking i want to be anywhere but here or talking yeah. about this it's pointless yeah so and again in the short term it is really successful because again you know a conversation goes smoothly you don't get the judgment and harassment i guess that you would normally get if you're kind of being your fully neurodivergent self but it's absolutely exhausting and i think it takes away a lot of your self-identity as you're not again you're kind of denying your ability to be yourself and I, looking back i was masking almost every single social interaction i had because it just made life easier in the moment but when you're doing it to that extent it's like the only place you can be yourself is your bedroom like even around yeah. all my family members like absolutely everyone i was masking and it's really interesting because even my parents who i still live with they said that my they say that my personality has actually changed quite a lot since kind of discovering this in the last few years and that's so again, sad it's so sad not being able to be your true self i hope you don't mind me pop popping in i need to do that sometimes because my adhd mind here's something really interesting mm -hmm. that you say and if i don't pop in i'll forget it and it was so good yeah and it and um and i do see clients so much with this you know mm -hmm. and sometimes i think i've missed clients because in the past because i i wasn't diagnosed myself we just you know when we were neurotypical or we weren't diagnosed we didn't know all the stuff that we know now and so i get clients coming to me and uh they're coming to me and and this happens a lot in the medical profession as well um with imposter syndrome perfectionism mm -hmm. and um you know just constantly feeling anxious and just this sort of ongoing stress um um, I've got a meeting coming up. What am I going to wear? Where should I sit? How should I speak? Um, what are they going to say to me? And you plan step by step exactly how everything that happens during your life is going to be. And then when the event has happened, you, you know, you're forensic in the way that you pull it all apart to see what it's like. And all of that is exhausting, isn't it? I mean, when I took my mask off, you know, I mean, no, I'm wearing funny nail varnish at the moment, but I, yeah. it, might go, it might go a lot further than that because I, I, I don't mind putting the mask on. 
I'm quite happy to do that because if I go fully unmasked, um, I'm not sure whether the world is going to be truly accepting. But what do you do? Do you sort of wear your mask and take it off? I mean, what, or, or are you maskless now? How do you describe yourself? I wouldn't say I'm maskless. Um, I think you'd need massive societal change for, <laughs> for it to be possible for me to be maskless. I think that's, that feels like quite a long way off um, now. But in terms of you know if i'm in a small group of people who all know i'm autistic and are accepting of that i can take the mask off at home i don't have to mask anymore and again and if i'm with a small group of friends in one of our houses i don't have to mask so there are definitely situations where i'm maskless but it's usually not in public so one of the um, one of, one of the things about masking, and it's very common. I mean, everybody can stim. Everybody can stim, whether you're neurotypical or not. It's something people do when it might be a stress response, or it might be just pleasurable and stimulating, or because you're concentrating, you're thinking of what to say next. But but in relation to masking. I mean, I suck my thumb sometimes. I don't mind sharing that because I'm being really open. Mm -hmm. But it's going to look a bit weird if I'm going down to Tesco's and I've got my thumb in my mouth. <laughs> so so yeah. I kind of save that for later on in the evening when I might be just sitting and watching a film or, or whatever. But stimming, stimming such a wonderful, fascinating and, and important part of who we are. Um, and do you stim? And if so, what, what kind of stims do you do? And do you have to mask your stims? Oh yeah, I mask my stims so quite often. I remember I started doing this in school. I put, I'd always keep my hands just under the table and I'd be stimming under there, fidgeting with a pen, anything I could get my hands on. But it's weird, I needed to do that stim to concentrate. But I knew if I was openly stimming in the classroom, you're a problem, you're being naughty, you're being distracting, that's going to have negative consequences. So I almost learned how to stim subtly so that nobody else would notice and it's weird because again i think that's part of masking but i don't think that's a part of myself i've fully unmasked perhaps a little bit to be fair again like i don't have a shame with needing to fidget now but i still do that naturally by default yeah. again i always kind of make sure my hands are out of sight so i can stim and that's again that's something i just haven't been able to get around with i guess Stimming. I want to see the whole world stim. We've got to, you know, <laughs> got to let the world to stim in perfect harmony. But one of the things I thought was quite funny because I was in London the other day um, is uh, some some very clever person, and I wish it had been me, had um, bought out this um, amazing giant bubble wrap coloured popping, you know, stimming thing that's really, really colourful. Oh, I've, I've got one of those, yeah. And they're gorgeous, aren't they? Especially the silicone ones. But now they've done a really cheap version and they're all over the place and you just see them wherever you go. And, um, you know, they're, they're a bit weird, aren't they? Um, you know, they, they just look plastic. And, and I'm sure that they were brought out for people who were, you know, for people who are um adhd but now everybody wants them don't they and you've got one and you've got it there i have so actually i've got one as a phone case that i've got with me right now oh look <laughs> at that it's a phone case and it's green yes oh my god it's lovely i really love that yeah i got it on amazon um and then i've got another like circle one as well and again i find that, that it's just so good for my visiting and my need to fidget it it's just, brilliant i love that yeah. and uh 
I do uh, resin craft. Uh, I mean, I've got so many hobbies and special interests, but I do resin craft. And one of the things that is quite useful in res resin craft is silly putty, which you, you don't get it very often, but it smells nice and it feels nice and you can make it so it pops and you can do all these kind of things with it. It's really, really. So for me, it's, it, it's the equivalent. You know, I don't, I don't need one of those things so much, but I love my silly putty. But I'm just going to ask you while we're on the, on the subject of kind of special interests and hobbies, um, going into flow and getting rid of intrusive thoughts and helping your mental health with mindfulness. One of the things is distracting yourself with, with our hobbies and our special interests. What are yours? Oh gosh, how long have you got? <laughs> um, for this so... introspection, about five minutes, if that's okay, Sarah. <laughs> no, that's fine. Otherwise, I, I will monologue. So, again, so I'll, I guess I'll just talk about my main interests. So, kind of one that I've had since almost childhood to now is Disney. Like, I just love all things Disney. Again, favourite childhood memories of going to Disney parks growing up. Brilliant. Absolutely love it. Um, and again, I got so excited when Disney Plus came out during lockdown last year. That, that was a highlight for me yes. last year. Who's Absolutely. your favourite character? Oh God, this is the thing. I find it so hard to choose a favourite I song. put you on the spot. You, must, oh, you shouldn't do that with um, autists. <laughs> but but um, or to, just think of a few so it's not so um, directed to one. Yeah, I mean, so growing up, it was definitely Dumbo was my favourite film and character. Again, I have That's the empath in you as well. He needed yeah. a lot of, empath, uh, of sympathy, if nothing else. Poor, poor Dumbo. I know. Again, with the scene with his, when his mom and oh, the crying song. Like, and that's Bambi for me. When when it's when well, I'm not going to give you a spoiler if you haven't seen Bambi, but the the bit the bit in Bambi yes. every single oh. time floods of tears. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what other Disney characters or like Disney films? Oh gosh. I'm really bad at being. Have spot. you got lots of memorabilia, um, or clothing, or any sort of you know um, produce or anything like that? That's about uh, yeah. Disney. Yeah, so it's not actually me, but it's, it's another member of my household. Um, loves fridge magnets, so our fridge. So oh yeah, yeah. Completely covered. Yeah, me and, too. Uh, I would say probably about forty percent of those are probably Disney. Fresh magnets in some shape. That's form. good for presents then, so that you don't have to get frustrated when people buy you a rubbish present because you, you've all got similar things, so you know they're going to get you something good, don't you? Exactly. <laughs> so that's brilliant. Oh, well, I love, I, I think that is a lovely, lovely special interest. And um, okay, I'll come back to that one. Um, let me just have a look. Um, oh, yeah, so um, one of my favorite people on, um, on YouTube actually is Paul Mikaleff. Um, he has really helped me an awful lot um, as far as trying to put um, autism and ADHD, you know, what is autism, what is ADHD? And so I did myself a Venn diagram with the way it crosses over in the middle. But it's important for me to sometimes recognize when I'm being autistic. My, um, my assessor, who was absolutely fantastic for um, autism, she said to me, if I was given meds for um, ADHD, my ADHD mm -hmm. would come down and my autism would come up which I found fascinating. Oh. Um, but, but for me, I, I don't want any meds. Um, when I mentioned it to my doctor, I told them about my diagnosis. She gave me a prescription for Prozac or the, you know, whatever that is. And I took it for four days. I thought, why am I on Prozac? I'm not depressed. I'm just mm -hmm. autistic, you know, so I threw them in the bin. 
you know, and it's, it's difficult that. Tell me about what you see as autistic and what you see as ADHD. Oh, I'm in constant conflict about what is what, personally. Um, but it's almost like, I guess the best way I see the overlap is ADHD sometimes feel like everything can be a bit chaotic. But I feel like my chaos is always organised, so that's where the aut autism yes, comes in. Yes, so I yes. just describe it as organised chaos. You're right. <laughs> that's the overlap for me. Yeah, and uh, and what do you like with organising? Because you know you have um, boxes of doom and floor drapes with ADHD, but then mm -hmm. with the autism, it's just so unbearable, and you need everything lined up. And it, well, I do. So mm -hmm. you know, are you messy or tidy or or, or organised chaos? Organised chaos, definitely. So everything has its drawer and is in its right drawer, but the drawer will be a mess. <laughs> and you get, so. well, one of the things I absolutely love is object permanence. So, mm. you know, um, you know where it is and it's underneath the pile of that over there in the corner. But don't move it because I know it's there. You know, if, you, if yeah. you move it or try and tidy it up, then it doesn't exist anymore and I've lost it. Do you have that? Yeah, so it's one of those things, if it's not where I left it and it's been moved, it's weird, I just enter panic, I'm like, oh my god, where's this thing that I need? And it really messes with your mind. <laughs> it does, but, it, but, but I do, I mean, I'm a big researcher anyway, I love research, and I, um, and, and I think a lot of us in our community, we are so fantastically self-aware, we have a really good observing self. And, um, you know, one of the things they say, um, people say in society, well, there's two things that we're not em empathic and we don't have a good imagination and we can't do metaphor. Well, well I don't think that's um, true. I don't, I don't agree with either of those. I've got a huge creative mind and I'm very, very imaginative. Sometimes my imagination is misused. Um, and I, I have too much empathy and I have more empathy for other people than I do for myself. How, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, all these old stereotypes and tropes about lack of empathy and imagination, I just think it's a pile of rubbish, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it's something I definitely don't identify with. Um, again, I know probably a lot of other people will feel the same way. I know some people feel that, I guess, they could be with them. But I think it kind of comes into this whole broader thing of, again, autism isn't just, or neurodivergence, it's just one narrow thing. It's a huge range of different things. Um, but in terms of kind of my own experience, I would say I'm extremely imaginative and I would use my imagination as almost a form of escapism at times. Yes. And, but I would never, I wouldn't necessarily, oh my God, I'm tripping over my words necessarily. Yes, right, yeah. um, Externalise it. Yeah. So from the outside, yeah, you may not see creativity, but it's it is there but it's just not for show like that's i guess my creativity is some or my imagination is something i like to keep private yeah um, and then also i think with kind of other people as well i think there may be a difference in how we experience empathy but if we don't experience empathy in the same way as they do then i think a lot of people just think oh it's not there when and it's, um, there's a double empathy question about everyone, uh, you know, people, well, not everyone, but people um, uh, will look at um, neurodivergent people and, um, and, and, you know, they won't understand them. They won't understand their facial expressions and what they're saying and they're all misunderstood. 
but it goes both ways you know we have mm -hmm. we have a, a difficulty sometimes with understanding with context and intention and that sort of thing with other people but it has to go both ways and that's the thing of changing society yes of course i respect and i'm going to do my best to be empathetic and understand what you're saying to me but can you do the same for me is that all right mm -hmm. that isn't it yeah no and that's definitely so true and i think it comes back to as well um the whole autistic people can't read facial expressions to be honest neurotypicals misread my facial expressions all the time yeah. and they're like are you all right you look so depressed sad i'm like i'm absolutely fine like, why yeah. are you thinking that? <laughs> so, smile smile oh, it might never happen no. i hate that <laughs> Oh my god the number of times people have told me to smile i automatically just think no or like i'll frown because <laughs> it's like i don't you can't tell me what to do but yeah it's definitely a both way things in terms of understanding and you know non-verbal communication body language facial expression but, but but on the mental health side um one of the things that i do realize it's a funny one it's that rejection sensitivity dysphoria again and uh, I did a test on it with um, Attitude magazine, which are brilliant, I think. And I came out 50%. And, and I agree with that because for me, 50% of me, you know, you can say what you like to me and it washes over me. I don't care about it at all. I, I don't get any RSD for it as, at all whatsoever. But the other 50%, I'm terrible. So it could be something like someone hasn't replied to a text or there's mm -hmm. been one particular comment or everybody else has liked something but one person hasn't or you know um somebody close to you says something and your whole world ends how are you with rsd i definitely experience it a lot and it's one of those things it's weird it's just like even if someone said you know they want something changed or they've done something about realizing even if it's the smallest thing and I know it's not a big deal. I can rationally see it's not a big deal when my emotions don't respond that way. Yeah. Um, and again, it's like I don't want to feel that negatively and intensely towards whatever trivial thing it is. But my brain almost can't help itself. It yeah. just goes into that. It does. And 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 I and I do now as a, a psychotherapist. I mean, for my whole life I thought I was mentally ill, but now I know I was just autistic mm -hmm. and ADHD. And it's mm -hmm. in some ways it's changed a lot of the way that I do my therapy now because you know sometimes you just can't help it, and you know because you might be wired differently, and um, and also this thing about depression and is an anxiety. It's because the world isn't made for everybody. It's made for maybe 70 or 80 percent of the people but what about kind of the rest of us um and you know and uh, and that can be you know quite difficult um for us something that you you said which i thought was quite interesting was um you said you identify with having traits of pda and um and it's quite a subject close to my heart um, on a sort of personal level but um i absolutely love harry thompson's book pda paradox which i listen to on um, audible and he's i mean i swear like a sailor and i just think he's absolutely hilarious he kept beeping him out all the time i thought it was really funny and i've yeah. been listening to the webinars on, from the pda society and and it's still very unrecognized and there's a lot of stigma about it and it's not diagnosed how does that affect you um so in and this is pathological demand avoidance well, by the way and yeah. explain explain what it means to you that yeah because again i think looking at pda from the outside it wasn't something i necessarily identified with but it was actually but then i did feel I was like oh there's a few bits 
I do. So quite often when people ask me to do something, I it automatically feels like a demand, like I'm demanding. Yes. Like people are demanding I do a certain thing, like I'm demanding that you pay attention right now, even if it's good for me or not, but perhaps they see it as just asking. And again, I, I, I can have quite an emotional response to that. Sometimes I show it, sometimes I don't. Um, but I think it was actually because through following um, Harry Thompson on social media was, I think, quite helpful with my understanding of it because he talks about something called fawning. Yeah. And I think that's the aspect of PDA. I was like, this is me to it. Please explain that because I, 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 that for me is a bit polyvagal as well. You explain what you think um, for fawning. So fawning is, so again, it's the kind of, you still have the need to control the situation, but quite often you may default into some form of masking or people pleasing as it can be quite difficult to control it. So let's say if you're, I'll give the example of school, it might be easier to explain it. Obviously you've got very little control and this is one of the reasons why me and school did not get on. and. But one thing, again, you could control or that you could, I guess, bring into or feel like you're in control is falling to people. So like very yes and no, so trying to meet their expectations. And again, I think I'm trying to, I'm finding it hard to explain the words to put yes. into work exactly. No, I, I know what you're saying. If I could put it, I, it, this has literally just popped into my head and I hope it's not too out there, but that is, that's how yeah. I roll anyway. But I'm looking now at a David Attenborough um, programme, a documentary about a troop of chimpanzees. And what will happen is there'll be um, an older chimpanzee and a younger one. And the younger one is being a bit mischievous and a bit naughty or not following the rules or something like this. Mm -hmm. And the older chimpanzee will, will hit them or they'll, or they'll do something. They'll, they'll do a facial expression or they'll make them go away. And the immediate thing that the, the uh, younger chimpanzee will do was go, will go out and offer their hand. And if the mm -hmm. hand is accepted, then they will start grooming that person in order to do that. And chimpanzees are only one chromosome away from us, you know, and, and on a human level, you know, why, why would we not do something similar to that when we're looking at something like falling with PDA? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those things where, again, it's, it very, it very much felt like an automated response, um, yes. not something I was, actively choosing but i think it was almost trying to get as close as you can to controlling the situation that you necessarily had no control over because again if you fawn you're less likely to i guess have negative consequences so and know your enemy keep your enemies safe in a way as well mm -hmm. by pleasing them exactly. yeah, it's really really fascinating if you want to know more information about pda then uh the pda society are very good and harry thompson mm -hmm. on youtube tiktok and his book pda paradox is really really good so um i'm just uh, making sure we cover everything we're doing really well so that's good yeah <laughs> um you've got some incredible experience and uh um what i'd like if that's okay and please you know I'm, i don't want to put you on the spot but it's just a factual thing can you just let um our listeners know 
um, some of the experience and the work that you've done. And I know that you have a blog as well. Some of the sort of content, you know, some of the blogs you've done as well. That would be really brilliant. Yeah, no, that's fine. So in terms of what I do, I basically have various part-time jobs here, there and everywhere. Um, but I help um, facilitate um, social groups, not social skills groups, groups where autistic adults socialise. I think it's clear to make that distinction. Yeah. Um, uh, for both the National Autistic Society and a charity called Hearts and Minds. Um, so that's mainly kind of evening work. And then I also help support um, people with mental health conditions and people in neurodivergent university. Um, so again, if people claim DSA, they can get support during their studies and that's what my role is. And because obviously it's the pandemic, I'm mainly doing that online. Um, so I guess that's my work. And then in terms of what, um, I do on my blog I generally it is kind of a mix of stuff I talk about but it's kind of sometimes it's like quite my personal experiences I write about on there sometimes I talk about topics that kind of relate to neurodivergency that are being talked about in the news perhaps so I know when was it I think about a week or two ago there was a lot of there was this really strict school's rules came out or something and it kind of exploded online so I kind of wrote about my thoughts on that in relation to um, how that would impact or I felt would impact a lot of neurodivergent people so yeah I do cover quite a variety of stuff um, and what other platforms are you on? Well, just tell me where we can. I'm going to put the links in the show notes, but um, where you know where can we find you? So I would say I'm mainly on Twitter. That's definitely my most active form of social media. So I'm at Sarah Ebeen on there. I'm the same on Instagram and TikTok as well. Although I probably don't use those as much. Def I definitely use them enough to follow. Yeah. Um, I, I also have. Um, a Kofi page um as well which I'll again that's at so I think everything's at Sarah E. Boone and then Sarah got, E. Boone is that yes and um and what I'll do is if you email me um all, all your links in your you know your um hashtags and ats and all the rest of it and so that our audience can find you and mm -hmm. and actually i do think you know would really like to um i'd love i'd love to have you back again sort of a bit later mm -hmm. on because it's not about having loads and loads of guests and uh, and and things it's about having people that kind of are are in my interest as well that can sort of definitely help um society and sort of advocates um mm -hmm. who are local and mainly uk based but uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it has been really fantastic talking to us. And I suppose the thing, you know, my, my last question uh, would really be, you know, how would you like to see positive change at home and at school and in the workplace to help all neurodivergent people feel included and um, as valuable members of society? Gosh, that's such a huge question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but no, it's fine. It's an important one to ask. But I think in terms of home, it's got to be family members being understanding and expecting. And I think one thing that I'd absolutely love to see is the move from this tragedy-based narrative. Your child's autistic. It's the end of the world. It's doom and gloom. And, you know, because they've got this 
deficit that doctors have said and it's just one of those things where again I think it actually does way more harm than good Mm. and it almost I think if you look at it like that it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways yeah um so I think I'd love to see a move of from it's the end of this world this child's life's ruined to okay what changes do we need to make in the world to my child and people like my child feel accepted and again I think on a societal level that definitely needs to happen um and also as well I think especially when you look at schools and healthcare and government services it's very much a one-size-fits-all approach and again part of that is because they're underfunded and sometimes sadly that's all they can offer but as long as there's that approach again it's neurodivergent people I think will always be the ones that fall through the cracks um and I think wouldn't it be lovely if well I think we're going to need to do this because mental health is always comes down um uh, down you know near the bottom you know it's cancer Mm -hmm. and it's uh, you know whatever it is and then we come very far down so goodness only knows when neurodivergence comes down but there's something that we can all do and that's advocate and we're intelligent people and uh, we're imaginative we're you know we're goal driven and solution focused and, and definitely within our community without getting the pitchforks out at dawn in my humble opinion you know we should we need to work together don't we as within our own community to say look here we are we have a voice we can really be um great in your company for instance i mean there's such a terrible percentage of people are not employed um, with, yeah. only, uh, with only a very few changes within um, a company um what do you think about that within organizations yeah i think it's definitely huge as employment is such a big one and again in terms of i think this is why my form of employment isn't so traditional and i'm a bit here there and there you know with various different organizations is and again i i have quite a bit of say in terms of where i work and when and that works for me that's good i just yeah it is it's weird i didn't plan for it to work out like this but it has and i'm grateful for it um but let's say if I was to work for one organisation, one company, nine to five, again, that's not necessarily how my brain works. Yeah. Quite often, I'll work in the morning, I sometimes have a nap in the afternoon, and then I'll continue working late after the evening. And yeah. that's what works for me. And I think it's, again, I'm really hoping COVID will help in this way, in terms of working from home. I loved it. And again, I'm So many did, and then we feel guilty for saying it. But we have huge empathy for all the terrible stories and the awful things that happen around the world. But um, 2020 was one of the best summers I've ever had in my life because the plane stopped flying, it was quiet, I was writing poetry and my brain and my body could relax. And I'm sorry, but for that, wasn't it amazing? Yeah, and the thing is, and I just felt I had more autonomy over my life. And again, I think this is definitely being a PA, again, I'm not having to contend with the office politics or kind of all the other stuff that's going on around me. I can literally just focus on the best way I can get a task done in the best way that works for me without 
everything distracting me or affecting my ability. And that makes you really productive <clears throat> and it keeps you well so you don't take time off work. I mean, there's all sorts of re reasons. It's yeah. risky because you need, you know, we, we need to live somewhere and we have to have money coming in. But uh, we'll, mm. we'll wind it up now. And um, thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on to the Neurodivergency and Mental Health podcast. And no I know that we're going to be seeing you again. So mm -hmm. thank you so, so very much. No problem. It's been great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. It's been excellent having you on. And, uh, and, and I hope to see you around, actually. It'd be nice to see you face to face. Definitely, as we're local to each other. So I'm Absolutely. Sure and I'll be waving your flag and, you know, let's work <laughs> together. And, and certainly in our yeah. local area, you know, bang that drum. Absolutely. Great talking to you again. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sarah. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health podcast. Links and resources will be at the end in the show notes. I very much look forward to meeting you again. Thanks for listening. Bye.